Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the LSC. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director, and it's my considerable pleasure tonight to introduce this session on the LSE Growth Commission and the issues of economic growth and more generally economic factors that influence societal well-being today. The Growth Commission has been widely announced in the media. This is a chance for you to get to know some of the commissioners in person and hear about several of the key findings and recommendations in the report. I think there will be no doubt about the importance of the issue of economic growth, about the uh, political volatility and the range of questions about the recommendations that are here. I'd like to suggest that the report, which is concise, deserves careful reading, that the issues deserve public debate, and that we will tonight start by bringing out the core findings. It's my job only to welcome you to this event, to press its importance on you, and to remind you that when the Queen came to the LSE to dedicate the new academic building, she asked pointedly of our economists, why didn't you warn us what is coming? The economists have answered more than once in various ways, but we think that the Queen has come to see the value of economics and the LSE's work. We're very pleased that just this week we have been awarded a new Regis Chair in Economics and will be delighted to house the uh, Regis Professor at the LSE and to recognize the Queen's support for our economic work. Now, uh, to be the uh, MC in effect for this event as we lead forward is an honor, but it's a more important thing to recognize the actual protagonists of this program um, and of the LSE Growth Commission. You'll get to meet a series of commissioners as we go through. We have several here tonight. Uh, they're not quite the whole group, but they are key leaders. And among them, Professor Tim Besley, school professor of economic and political science, is crucial as the co-chair of the report with John Van Rienen, also um, a, the head of the Center for Economic Performance, as well as a professor. And Tim Besley will introduce the report to you now. Tim, thank you. Good evening, everybody. Uh, so hopefully the, the screen will at this point uh, change to the presentation. Uh, is there somebody? Do I, do, I, do I have to click down? Yes, okay. So I'm going to, there we go. So there we are. There's the, uh, there's the uh, cover of our, of our report. So what, what, what we're going to do is, is, is Craig has already said, um, we're going to have a number of commissioners present uh, different parts of the report, and then we'll have a Q&A session at the end, at the end of that. My, what I'm going to do is just to tell you a little bit about the background and motivation for the report and, uh, uh, and outline some of the key themes, as well as taking you through what we, what we uh, say in the report about how we got to where we are now, which we think is important in, in looking at the whole context of the growth challenges that we face. Um, we should begin by thanking uh, our funders, uh, particularly the Economic and Social Research Council and LSE's Knowledge Exchange 
uh, program that have supported, in particular, the Secretariat that has, that has underpinned the work of, of, our, of our Commission and has been extremely important, led by uh, Miguel Coyo, who's here in the, in the audience. Uh, here's the, uh, the cast of characters, uh, a number of whom are with, with you and who will uh, uh, speak to various aspects of the report that John and I uh, have, uh, have co-chaired, um, but we, we've, this has been very much a collective effort involving all of the commissioners, uh, whose photographs you see there in the list of names. I won't just run through that pro forma, and for those of you who have copies of the report, you will be able to refer to that. Unfortunately, uh, Lord Brown um, uh, is, is not able to, to be with us this evening uh, as he has another engagement. Uh, Chris Pissarides uh, is, is also away, um, I, I believe, in Cyprus. And, uh, and uh, Philippe Baguillon, who is based at Harvard, is also unable to travel to London for this launch. But otherwise, you have almost a, a full set of commissioners. Um, why do we think we need an LSE Growth Commission. What was the motivation for setting this up? Um, partly, it was a feeling of frustration that the debate in the UK um, had got bogged down to a degree in uh, debates about short-term austerity, losing sight, we felt, of some of the longer-term structural issues. And of course, those intersect, and this is something that may come up in the Q&A, but we felt it's important to look beyond the short-term and to focus on some of the important long-term questions. Um, of course, there are numerous reports on growth. Some of them are depicted here. Um, so why is it we, we felt we could make a distinctive contribution? Well, one thing we, we think we can do with the particular group we brought together is to uh, be able to take stock of what's a considerable body of evidence uh, on aspects of growth and to bring those to bear on the debate. Uh, and uh, we felt we would have something to contribute, in particular the work of the Center for Economic Performance, which has been working on productivity and growth issues for a long time. Their work is very much influential in what we're doing here. Um, and, uh, and also the, the work of the Institute for Government, our partner in the Growth Commission on uh, issues of government reform is also an important part of the underpinnings, if you like, for what we're doing. Um, the Commission has come from a broad range of backgrounds, uh, some academics from the UK and uh, Philip Aguillon, as we mentioned, from, uh, from Harvard, uh, but also people with considerable experience in business and in making policy. Uh, in other words, we wanted to create something that would, be, uh, would, would ref represent and reflect a variety of uh, different perspectives on these issues rather than taking what you might call a narrowly academic perspective. And uh, also, I think what's distinctive about this report is something that came up actually rather early when we asked, uh, uh, the, 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 we had a, a launch meeting for the report where we had Larry Summers and, uh, and uh, Steve Nichols speak uh, at that launch. And one thing that I think Steve in particular said is, well, there's been lots of reports on growth. Isn't the real question why nothing seems to happen after these various reports are, are launched? Well, we're having a stab at that question. One of the key questions we want to address is why things have not been fixed before. And we view that as very much a political economy perspective and what institutions are needed so that we have something that is fit for purpose. So let me briefly... Uh, tell you uh, where, we, where, where we go with the report. I, I think it's fair to say that there is an optimistic story here, that the UK has many assets, um, uh, uh, rule of law, flexible labor markets, uh, uh, competitive product markets, uh, uh, you know, a strong university sector, and generally an appreciation of the importance of openness to foreign direct investment and also openness in labor markets. 
Um, and as a consequence of that, the UK had uh, reversed uh, the relative decline uh, uh, that had been experienced in a, in a much earlier period, and I'll come back to that in a moment, over the last three decades. Um, where are the deficits? And I don't mean the deficits that get debated in austerity. I mean deficits in a more uh, uh, intellectual sense. They were in, uh, really in uh, having an environment, we think, in which there was too much uh, policy instability to support long-term investment. So that's a theme of the report, which will resonate, I think, throughout the presentations you'll hear. But also a concern that growth has not been sufficiently inclusive. And, and many of you will be familiar with the fact that during a period of relatively strong and sustained growth, uh, there's also been uh, a period of, of rising inequality. And that, again, we'll, we'll talk about where that comes into our story later. So the fundamental issues that we raise here are issues of the failure to engage in sufficient long-term investment in, in a number of areas, in particular human capital, especially skills, mid-level skills, um, uh, has been a, a long-term deficit in the UK. Infrastructure, especially in the arena of transport and energy and in areas of private uh, investment innovation, and that's re resulted in low, comparatively low levels of productivity. And so what we think is needed and what motivated us to set up this report is a manifesto for growth, and we think that's what we've produced. I think one of the things that you might be most struck by in our report is its brevity. Um, there is a sort of, uh, a, a generally, reports that are produced by bodies like this one tend to produce uh, uh, reports which I suppose they want to be uh, rated by their weight. Um, we, we deliberately um, decided to produce a very uh, concise report now, uh, behind that, though, lies a great deal of work that can be downloaded from the website, particularly produced by our secretariat. So it's not that we're uh, – we hope that's not a reflection of the, the brevity of our thinking and the brevity of our work, but it's what we felt we needed to convey to you and to those who read it concisely uh, in order to make our message digestible. Um, just a brief word on how we operated. We've, been moved, we've essentially started the Growth Commission about a year ago. We've had a series of commissioner meetings in which we've exchanged ideas. We've had evidence sessions which are available for download on the web. They were live evidence sessions with questioning by, by commissioners. We, had, we asked for written evidence and got some extremely uh, insightful and interesting written evidence from a variety of people. Um, we have produced, as I just said, a variety of background documents as our thinking has evolved. And finally, we produced the report. I think one of the questions we're currently beginning to focus on is what next? What's the follow-on? Because I think another feature of reports like this and on any topic is, to, is that there's a risk always that it ends with the report. And we very much view, view this as being part of an, an agenda that needs to be uh, 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 followed up on. So let me... Um, I think I've already said this, and I'm going to leave this to my fellow commissioners, the, the three big... Uh, Areas they're going to talk about are human capital, infrastructure, and investment and innovation. So I'll skip this. Let me just very briefly, though, uh, as by way of setting the scene, discuss uh, the bigger sort of background picture. How do we get to where we? How do we, did we get to where we are now? And there's a big long-run story here, which many of you will be familiar with, um, and uh, which is essentially that the UK, of course, was the first industrial nation. Um, and, uh, and then after, uh, the, and that was around, of course, the period of the Industrial Revolution in the early uh, 19th century. Um, and uh, thereafter, there was a period of catch-up 
Um, and by uh, 1950, we'd been caught up, as the, the second column shows you, by the U.S., and subsequently caught up and overtaken by Germany and France um, by uh, the late 1970s. Now, what, what's striking uh, for the period thereafter uh, is that uh, we saw something of a reversal of fortune, meaning that the U.K. Uh, caught up with the countries that had previously at least these major economies here, that have previously overtaken the UK. And so there's a sort of broad context in which we couldn't have been doing everything wrong, uh, we feel, and I'll come to what we think we were doing right, that meant after a period of a long-run long uh, decline, the UK actually has uh, reversed its, its fortune. Of course, then we've had this new debate, this renewed debate, and on, uh, due to the advent of the financial crisis, but this is ending on the eve of, that, of the financial crisis. Over that period, um, you see that the UK's growth rate among the, uh, looking at US, Germany, and France as comparators, was the strongest growth rate uh, among those four in the period uh, beginning from, the, um, from around 1980. Um, and moreover, and this is something that, that we really want to emphasize strongly because you often hear it and it's simply false when people claim it, it's not all about finance. Um, that there was, there was strong productivity growth, which did vary by sector, and what these two charts do is to break it down by sector. But in particular, in the latter period leading up to the crisis, there was strong productivity growth in a number of sectors, including manufacturing um, and, uh, and uh, business services. Uh, and it's not just a story of um, Britain being propped up or growing just because of what was going on in the financial sector. The productivity growth was broad-based and... Um, and, uh, and we think that's important because often when you hear commentary on where we are now, people assume that the only reason we'd had a period of strong growth prior to the crisis was because of the financial sector. So what worked? What do we think were the drivers of growth leading up, leading up to that period? Um, the UK um, adopted a regime with tougher competition through privatization, independent regulators and competition policy, flexible labor markets through reforms to employment services, benefits, and union law, Increases in university education, Britain had a very large expansion beginning in the 1960s, recognizing the importance of frontier-level skills. Um, and uh, the, so 5% of the population had a degree in 1980 compared to 31% in 2011, so a very significant expansion. And Britain, as I said earlier, has been a very open economy, open to foreign direct investment and open uh, to immigration. Um, we think that this has been underpinned in part by a certain number of important institutional factors, um, that we've been very good in the UK in a number of areas, at creating independent bodies um, uh, populated by experts and resist, resilient to certain kinds of political pressure. Uh, and we're thinking of uh, the Competition Commission, the Office for Fair Trading, the Bank of England, the Office of Budget Responsibility more recently. A number of institutions have been created that we think are attempting to put politics in, in, in the right place. Because in a democracy, it's obviously, the politics is central to everything that happens. But we think it's the interplay between expertise and long-run uh, outlooks and politics that creates economic success. And so we think in the UK, there are things that we've done that we can, we can firmly say have been important in supporting growth and explain why we had what was a sustained period of success. What didn't work, though, well, that's what you're going to hear about because we're going to give you our own take on what can make things better. Um, policy failures um, around particularly what we would call procrastination and reversals, um, which we attribute to 
in many cases, short-term political horizons. Um, adversarial politics often causes tinkering, rebranding, and reversals. So one government will simply want to rebrand or reverse what a previous government has done, creating, making it very difficult for, in, in, in some key areas for those who we're relying on to invest, to invest with any confidence that the regime that's in place will stay in place over any period of time. We also think in certain areas lack of independent expert and advice and evaluation, and in some cases too, areas like infrastructure, we think this is particularly uh, problematic, have been governed, we think, excessively by some kinds of populist pressure. So these are areas where we think the scope for improvement. Um, and the consequence of that is is the high levels of uncertainty and low investment in long-term assets. So our core story is about creating the conditions to reverse that uncertainty and to create the kind of stability that you need in a dynamic and changing world to respond to any, anything that requires a long-term outlook. And as I said briefly before, uh, inequality uh, has been growing over this period. We regard that also as a challenge. Um, how, do we want, how do we make the growth process inclusive? And also, how do we make sure that, in, that we create the widest possible constituency for growth by having participation in the growth process? And this is where, as you'll see and hear later, is where the skills agenda comes in in particular. So I'm going to hand over now to my uh, uh, fellow Commissioner John Van Rienen, who's going to talk you through some of what we're recommending on the human capital front. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Tim, for a great uh, introduction. So um, I'm going to kick off the, th I guess, the three core areas where we think there's been a major problem in the UK in terms of failure to, invest, to make long-run investments in the things that underpin a successful economy. And the, the first of those, um, and arguably the most important of those, is investment in people, in human capital. So why does this matter so much um, in, in a modern economy? Well, in, in the work which has been done on looking at the factors determining growth, one of the strongest relationships we, we've seen is between skills and growth, human capital and, and long-run growth. And you know, there's lots of aspects of human capital I'm going to talk about, but I'm going to focus, and we focus on the reports, on compulsory schooling. Because in the long run, unless you get that right, you, you can improve the flow of kids going through schools, you're never going to deal with the overall problem of human capital. Now, what the literature tells us is, first of all, the focus that people generally have on the quantity of schooling you know, matters, but the quantity is, in some sense, less important than the quality. is what happens to kids in those hours they're, 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 at, they're there at school, in those years they are there at school. And the kind of cognitive and non-cognitive skills passed on are absolutely critical rather than just the amount of hours which uh, they're, they're actually at their desks. Secondly, of all the inputs into teaching, into the kind of educational production function, class sizes, wages of teachers, computers on desks, none of those are as important as the most simple thing that every parent knows, which is the quality of the teachers which are in front, in front of those children. So really, a lot of this is about is improving the quality of teaching and, and teaching methods. Thirdly, um, the literature shows you that if we can, as we're going to argue, increase the, the human capital 
uh, particularly of disadvantaged groups. I mean, as, as Tim showed you, at the top end, getting, you know, improving the proportion of people who have university college education, we've done pretty well. But where we failed is at the bottom end, the bottom 20 or 30% of the ability distribution, uh, the dis people, the, the kind of disadvantaged kids who are not getting the, um, the quality of education we need. And, you know, if you can improve their human capital, not only would you get more growth, but you would actually get lower inequality. You get this double dividend of inclusive growth because by improving their ability to earn higher wages later in the labor market, it's a form of you know, what Ed Miliband likes to call pre-distribution, increasing their capacity and therefore removing people in the future who might be on benefits or might be caught up with the criminal justice system. So really it's, it's extraordinarily important. Now, where, where are we let down by the UK? If you look at our overall test scores... Um, so, for example, the OEC PISA test, which does maths and literary skills at age 15, we're kind of mediocre. We're not at the bottom, but we're a long way away from the top-performing nations like Finland and, and, and South Korea. Furthermore, if you break that down, where this kind of mediocre performance comes from, it's this kind of long tail at the bottom end, which is kind of dragging us down. So we have a long tail of uh, underachievement in terms of uh, children at school not doing well, schools performing badly. And that's kind, of this, that, that's kind of where the focus has to be. And furthermore, if you look at where this long tail comes from, you know, in every country, um, kids who are from poorer families do worse at school. We know that. But that relationship, the impact, the negative impact of uh, po poverty or social economic class on bad outcomes is much stronger in the UK than other countries. So really this is one of the the areas of great concern for us. Okay, so we have, what can we do about this? So we have a set of three core proposals of how we could change the educational system in this country to improve things. Um, the first of those is what we call a kind of flex, of changing the school system, and so something which we call a kind of flexible ecology or more flexible system. That has four different parts. And the idea behind this is a way of spreading better practices, better teaching practices, better, better teaching around schools in a way which is much better than we're doing at the moment. So part of that is giving more autonomy to head teachers, letting principals and head teachers make the decisions rather than uh, politicians in local authorities or in Whitehall. So greater autonomy. That has to be not just, you know, you can give people autonomy, but unless that's... Uh, Unless, those, unless there's other things, that autonomy could be wasted. So in addition to the autonomy, you need accountability, you need a good inspection regime, you need good information to help parents make choices, and, and a kind of core curriculum, which doesn't dictate everything, but dictates the kind of core things you need. In addition to that, you want, we want to have wider parental choice, not choice driven by just whether you can afford to buy a house in a good school area, but more broadly being able to, to choose between many schools to give incentives for schools to improve. But the final part of that is to give the abilities of good schools to grow. So one of the best ways, and this is true of all areas, of spreading better teaching practices is to allow the excellent schools to, to become larger. And you know, there's two ways to do that. One is through kind of physical expansion. Of course, that's, that is often, could be made easier, but that's often hard just because of physical space constraints. But the other way is through what's sometimes called the sponsored academy way. So um, the, the kind of academy movements which incorporates some of the things I've, I've talked about, one of the key aspects of the early academies was to um, get sponsors. So those sponsors could be universities, it could be networks of, of private or public schools, it could be other successful, outstanding, uh, it could be businesses. 
Those are ways of getting better leadership and governance within, within schools. And, of course, if, um, if, that, if that academy, sponsored academy, is doing well, it can take over other schools who are struggling and who are failing. And that's a way of spreading these better practices around, around, around the whole system. So that's the kind of model we want to move towards. The, the academy system is getting towards that, so part of the academy movement is getting towards that. Where I think that's uh, failing is in the second point. So... The, as I mentioned, one of the key things is how we tackle, unlock the, the, uh, the talent we have in this country, which, which we're not currently doing. And the problem is with the current, mo- the current uh, academization system is it's focused very much on kind of the average rather than dealing with this, 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 long, this long tail of disadvantage. So the, um, the kind of floor targets, for example, the fact you have a certain proportion of people have to get good GCSEs, allow schools to just target the marginal kids to get a few more to get A to C's in in maths and English, and can effectively ignore um, 10, 20% of the the kids who are doing badly. So there's the the four steps to get that working are the following. First of all is information. So when we get league table information, for example, we want to see not just the kind of averages, but we want to see the progress of how disadvantaged kids are doing. So disadvantaged, say, is measured by kids on the pupil premium or free school meals, how are they improving over time at schools? That should be part of the information we get. It should be built into inspections. So when Ofsted looks at the schools which are in trouble, it should you know, take that fully into account in a way that it doesn't do. I, mean, I think no school should be an outstanding school unless it's able to improve the position of people who are disadvantaged kids. Thirdly, in terms of the targets that we have, um, again, that should take into account not just the, the kind of average or the proportion who get uh, A to Cs, but also improving the, the, uh, the kids who are disadvantaged. And all of those things, I think, would help. But perhaps the most important thing, though, is in terms of this kind of sponsored academy movement. So although there has been a big increase of academies, these more um, autonomous schools since uh, 2010, when the academies out and the, the coalition put in power, that has mainly happened in, uh, in wealthier areas. And the original vision of the sponsored academy movement was taking uh, schools in disadvantaged areas who are struggling, helping them with sponsorship, helping them with uh, improvements. And I think there has to be a kind of some sort of return to that original vision if we want to really improve what's happening to the low tail of the distribution and tackle disadvantage. So that's the second core pr- set of proposals. The third one is on teacher quality. And the key kind of finding in the academic literature here is that it's actually, although te- we know that teachers are important, it's actually very hard to predict which teachers are going to be the successful ones ex-ante in advance. I mean, it, the, 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 the successful teachers are not necessarily the ones who have got, you know, PhDs or Nobel Prizes from, uh, from the Economics Department LSE, as much as I hate to say this. The uh, excellent uh, teachers are often from, you know, completely different diverse backgrounds. And the way you find out whether they're good is what they do when they get in the classroom. So it's not, you can't predict this from how, you know, how many years they've been at school. It actually comes from actually uh, seeing how they, predict from, how they perform in front of the classroom. And parents and head teachers and the kids themselves know this. So that's the key thing we have to take into account when we think about how to deliver improvements to teacher quality. So one way to do that is expanding the uh, proportion of kids, uh, proportion of people who want to be uh, teachers. So, you know, for example, the Teach First program, which kind of is, uh, tries to attract uh, top graduates from, from, from many different universities, is, is a good way of doing that. 
But also we should have a wider intake. So the, the current movement is to make it you know, tougher and tougher to enter into teacher training. You know, you know, you have to have a 2-2, maybe a 2-1, and a first. We, we don't think this is the right direction of travel. We think that we should actually allow greater entry in the same way we'd want greater entry you know, in many different, uh, many different fields, but that have much more rigorous selection at the end over which the teachers were successful and which were not. So that might have to be um, combined with an extension of the probation period, maybe from two to four years. Um, obviously, you know, with a, you know, a, a constant you know, package to, pay package to encourage teachers to do that, and then be able to select much more rigorously at the end of, end of that process. Um, for, for existing schools, one of the things that has been very successful, one of the great success stories in education has been in London. London has had very uh, strong improvements of its, uh, its schools over the last 10 years. And one of the factors behind that appears to be this thing called London Challenge, which was a program about sharing best practice between schools. So improving schools is often about sharing what works across a range of schools, and that's, um, you know, in London Challenge was a way to do that. So we think those, those are all ways in which we can improve teacher quality. We have several other proposals. I'm not going to have time to talk about that. Let me very briefly mention a couple. One is on just the financial support side. So um, in addition to the extra money which goes to uh, uh, local authorities which are poorer, there's something called the pupil premium, which is an amount of money which goes with disadvantaged kids as defined on free school meals. Um, that's being increased from 600 to 900 pounds, which uh, you know, we generally support. We like to suggest a pupil premium plus program, which actually allows uh, the kids and the families to keep some of that extra money directly. Um, the advantage of that is like it was called a conditional cash transfer. So you would get to keep the money if you obviously were, at, were staying at school, attending and improved your uh, academic performance after the age of 14. This would be built on the successful model of the education maintenance allowance, which uh, was evaluated by uh, the Institute of Fiscal Studies. I see Paul Johnson in the audience, who uh, was, uh, you know, is the head of the Institute of Fiscal Studies. And this was, uh, I think, a very successful program. It's unfortunate this was abolished. And this would be a way of combining, I think, the best of both worlds, the pupil premium and the uh, EMA. And we can call it pupil premium plus, so as not to embarrass the government. Um, a couple of other things. So I focused on schools. What about after schools? So the, the transition from schools to work is an area where the UK has, has, uh, has been historically less successful in terms of raising intermediate skills. Um, there's a consensus we need to increase numbers of apprenticeships, which we, which we agree. But the key thing is quality. The, there's been a big increase in the number of apprenticeships over the last couple of years, but too many of them, I think, have been in, in low-quality jobs. Uh, too many of them have been, I mean, the, the, a lot of them have been for over 25s instead of under 25s. We think that um, we need to radically improve the quality of apprenticeships um, to make them longer, to um, kind of make employers take ownership of this, take more responsibility for these apprenticeships. So, for example, giving them the budgets to, to, to use themselves. But in addition, have responsibilities on, um, on those businesses as well through, for example, we could think about having an industry levy on training. So that's on after school. Um, before school is also equally, if not more, important. Um, and, you know, there are many preschool interventions, if successful, could really be big improvements. Um, children's centres, again, we could focus more on disadvantages. There's a very successful policy called Family Nurse Partnerships, which um, experimental evidence shows has been successful. That's getting uh, kids very early to give them the right kind of health and early ed educational interventions. So that, that's the kind of package of things we put forward. Um, 
In all the talks you're going to hear, we'll talk about why these problems persisted. This is very speculative. Uh, we think that the reason the problems have persisted is an overfocus on the average. You know, it's a natural focus for politicians having votes and, and the media rather than those who are disadvantaged. There's, a, there's too much emphasis given to the perception of policy change and differentiation because of adversarial political culture and not enough focus on what works. And, of course, there's vested interests who don't want to make these changes which are, are going to upset people. I hope that um, this, what we're doing in the Growth Commission, is trying to overcome some of those vested interests. So, people, the key resource, We've, we have a vision of a more flexible school system with a focus more on disadvantage for growth reasons, not just because of social justice, although that's obviously extremely important, but also for raising growth and unlocking the talent that we're wasting in this country by not dealing with people who are at the lower end of the distribution, primarily through improving teaching, but also through this other complementary package of proposals. The gain is absolutely huge. People, you know, I, you know there's various numbers flying around are absolutely huge, but whatever the exact number is, there is a huge potential growth gain if we can get this human capital story right. Thank you very much. Next turn. Let me start by underlining what a growth strategy is, is not. It's not abolishing health and safety, allowing people to pollute and damage wherever they like, raising the speed limit from 70 to 80 miles an hour, allowing hospital doctors to work for uh, 100 hours and changing your mind every five minutes and resolving all problems and differences by deciding to have a review later. That's not what we mean by a growth strategy. What we do mean by a growth strategy is creating an environment where people, particularly the private sector, can invest with some confidence, total confidence not on offer, this is a world of uncertainty, but with more confidence about where the economy might be going in its key elements so that they can make their investments in that uh, context. Investments in people, in infrastructure, in innovation, I'll be talking talking about infrastructure. A weak infrastructure constrains growth. A stronger infrastructure with all its networks enables creativity, people to interact with each other, do different things. We focused on transport and energy, which is the lion's share, actually, of the quantitative investment, and where we have particular problems of great congestion in the transport system, not, the, not a transport system that's not as well linked up Roads, rail, roads, air and rail as it should be and uh, great strain coming uh, on energy capacity. So that's where we focused and uh, we recognised and spoke about the weaknesses in those particular areas. Why do those weaknesses arise? Why have those weaknesses arisen? Well, it's a lack of a clear sense of strategy. Uh, people don't really know where road, aviation and rail are going to go together or uh, separately, that weakens the investment incentives. There's vacillation in and politicisation of policies and projects. Um, I come at this subject as six years of Chief Economist of the EBRD, three and a half years as Chief Economist of the World Bank, and three and a half years in the Treasury, during which I worked on, as Head of the Government Economic Service, where I worked on 
the Eddington Review, amongst other things. And all of us who've had that kind of experience have had great exposure to policy-based evidence rather than evidence-based policy. Policy-based evidence, of course, being producing evidence for what a minister has already decided to do. So our, that's one reason why we've got where we are. A second is a rigid planning framework which doesn't really allow either sensible economic um, analysis to appear in a structured and a consistent way and is limited in its scope of allowing individuals who might otherwise be damaged by something in the national interest to share in the benefit and to be compensated. Sharing in the benefit makes a more positive language than being compensated, but a bit of each if you're expressing it. And also we've had rigid and misleading public sector accounts. Public sector net debt, which is used largely to manage much of uh, decision-making, particularly on the investment front, doesn't <coughs> count the assets that the debt finances. Now, when you buy your house, uh, you compare your mortgage with the value of your house, but public sector net debt doesn't allow that kind of analysis. Whole government accounts, which are also there, um, would do much better, not perfect, but would do much better than that but essentially it's public sector net debt that is used to manage this. So we have a problem also with the accounting system. So we have the weakness in the infrastructure, it constrains growth, it constrains creativity, and in our view these are the three basic sources that it comes, these are the three basic sources that these weaknesses come from and has led to investment in infrastructure in the UK being more like 2.5% or 3% of GDP over the last decade or so compared, say, with an OECD average of more like 3.5% or 4 So um, uh, our propositions are based on the diagnosis, as they should be. So um, here they are. And I go, I like all the slide at the same time. That's, uh. So what we recommend is an infrastructure strategy board Think of the MPC or think of NICE as a rather as independent bodies which are able to analyse carefully uh, in the public industry, in the public interest, take a long-term view and are accountable to Parliament. They give you some foundation for cross-party consensus, uh, democratic in the sense that if you ask people what they would like to have to run their decision-making, those are the kinds of things they would point to. And if you pose the question, or do you want a politician interfering every five minutes, I think their democratic preference would be for this kind of structure. So uh, uh, long-term and expert analysis is, in my view, pro-democratic, not anti-democratic. Uh, the, um, the, an infrastructure planning commission, which would be more um, associated with delivery at the project level. It would allow serious and uh, as objective analysis as possible. It would allow for the sharing of uh, benefits of development and there'd be no ministerial veto. We actually have a national infrastructure plan. It was revised uh, a couple of months ago, but it's more like a, a to-do list with no real, not enough real structure to it and it's located in Her Majesty's Treasury, a splendid organisation of which I was part, but subject, of course, to... Uh, a ministerial um, choice influenced by the political needs of the moment under the Chief Secretary of the Treasury. We have, a we have an infrastructure planning unit, but that's in the Department of uh, Communities and Local Government, and again, uh, subject to um, ministerial 
uh, intervention, uh, maybe well-intended at the time, but it is rather individual and can be capricious. Lastly, I should say that examples of the kind of thing we have in mind on the Infrastructure Strategy Board exist in Australia, the kind of things we have in mind in, on uh, sharing, say, the benefits of development exist in France. Um, when they were building Charles de Gaulle Airport, they authorised four times the apparent value of the land as compensation. If you look at where nuclear plants are located in France, communities are competing because the community is so well compensated for uh, allowing that. These are not sort of fancy LSE academic ideas. Well, they may be, but they also have strong examples. They're not sort of uh, imaginary. So think France for sharing benefits of development. Think Australia, Infrastructure Australia for Infrastructure Strategy Board. Lastly, Infrastructure Bank, think of the EBRD. Uh, I was there for six years, and I, I think it's a considerable success story. Why does it work? It's a bank to encourage mostly private sector investment. Its presence reduces pol policy risk. Governments in Central Europe and, and further east where we were investing are less likely to mess around uh, with a project if the EBRD is involved because it's got a repeated relationship, there's reputation at stake. Something of that uh, occurs here too. The Brazil National uh, Development Bank, the BNDES, again the partnership with the BNDS gives confidence to those who are investing with it in future policies. So just its presence reduces risk. And the last thing I'd want to emphasize of what, what it does is, is the multiplier effect. What it can do is to partner with um, uh, other investors and it could multiply by four or five. So if this was a bank which was capitalized at 20 billion could lend up to 50 billion and then partnered by, with others by taking only 25% of the story but giving all the confidence with it, you could imagine such a thing uh, eventually uh, investing up to 200 billion, which might be, the lion, might be a ballpark, a half of what we need to invest in infrastructure over the next 10 years or so. Sometimes it's best to start small and work upwards, but it, it does satisfy numerically and the need to give a major contribution to the kinds of things we're thinking about. So this is uh, what it might look like, and it's about promoting confidence and transparency so that mainly private sector investment can move forward. Um, though the, the two things I did want to emphasize here in relation to this is that it's a, not a national planning board. This is not a GOS plan. This is about creating an environment where private sector investment can take place with greater confidence and more strategic sense than it does now. So it's promoting private sector investment and for the reasons I've already given, I believe it's a, in many ways a, more, it's a structure that would be, refer, would be preferred in a democracy if you ask people the, quest, the question, do you want these structures to look like this with long-term vision or do you want them to fiddle around with every five minutes? Now, we did look at some other things. We looked at, um, uh, this is, and this is where I'll finish, we looked at the fiscal uh, uh, accounting problem which I've uh, referred to and the importance of recognizing assets and not, debt, and not just the debt when you're managing capital expenditure and the debt associated with it. We did say quite rightly that road pricing is a, uh, an idea whose time has come. It's the best way to manage congestion, and if used wisely, it can also be part of a story of raising a revenue stream for building. Um, we spoke a little bit about housing, looked at some of the planning 
issues in the similar way to what I've just described. We looked a little bit at broadband. But basically, we concentrated on transport and uh, energy. Now, if we did go ahead, as uh, we, I've just described, it's just possible we could lose headlines like this. Small sample from the last few months. We have not taken a position on HS2. We have not taken a position on runways at Heathrow. Um, what we would take a position on not wanting the lights to go out. But the, <laughs> what we're arguing here is that what we should be trying to do is to give a clear framework for people to make an investment so that people can see where we're going and then in those, that context, the private, a private sector-led investment story would do things much better than we've done in the past. Thank you. Professor Richard Lambert. That's good. Um, I'm going to uh, keep it very short so that we can have uh, uh, more time for uh, discussion. Uh, my um, part of the pro program is to talk about innovation, which is the third channel for growth that we identify in our report. Uh, we see innovation as the thing that helps to drive competitiveness, that uh, fires creative destruction, that makes the whole... Uh, uh, dynamic processes work, and that leads over time to, um, in a, to, to, to growth. And we decided at an early stage two things. One was that access to finance is very important when one's thinking about innovative um, activities. And two, we also felt that policy mattered in this space. Um, I exaggerate a little when I say that sort of during the 90s and the early parts of this century, um, government view really was that if you create... Uh, macroeconomic stability, stand back and let the private sector get on with it. We think that we need more uh, policy than just that. Uh, and we talk a lot about competition, about market access, about the support for uh, research and development and um, investment in intangibles, finance again, tax and, um, and regulation. And the uh, diagnosis that we come to, well, is that... Uh, the UK uh, uh, investment as a share of GDP is uh, relatively low compared with France, Germany, and Japan. Uh, dropped sharply uh, uh, during the recession, but had been sliding in the period running up to that and has not recovered uh, much. Um, we also felt that there were composition problems in our investment uh, programs in the sense that it's heavily skewed to real estate. In the five years up to the crash, uh, roughly three-quarters of bank lending, which was not bank lending to each other but to the outside world, was to, um, to real estate with the results we know about. We also um, drew attention to uh, low R and D intensity in the UK. Back in the early 80s, uh, UK business investment in R&D was about the highest in the G7. Now it's close to the lowest. And we also thought a little about um, management mediocrity, a subject on which... Uh, John is the world's leading expert and much loathed by people like the CBI as a result. Um, uh, all this equals, all this comes together and adds up to uh, uh, lower GDP per hour than our, our peers. Um, uh, thinking about what the explanation might be, um, one thing we came to was uh, the question of how the, uh, how our, uh, the functioning of our capital markets um, uh, increasing uh, myopia, as uh, identified by um, Andy Haldane, John Kay in his report last year, um, 
what Adam Posen, when he was in the MPC, talked about, the, the sort of missing tyre in uh, business finance in the United Kingdom, which means that compared with our peers, again, uh, we have um, a much uh, lower exposure to bond markets for small companies, no commercial paper market to speak of. The equity market in London really plays no part in the financing of uh, British companies uh, these days, making it very difficult to fund innovations and uh, young companies. And we thought a lot about the lack of competition in, in, in retail banking, uh, much more concentrated than in France, Germany, and, of course, the, the United States, and made worse, much worse, by the crash as um, challenger banks were, um, ran into trouble and were absorbed by um, the, the, the big ones, and uh, by the way in which uh, Lloyds was allowed to take um, over HBOS at the peak of the, of the, of the crisis. So that, um, uh, those were some of the... Um, some of the problems we, we identified, and we thought that one way to start here was to think hard about competition in, in retail banking, um, uh, that um, no uh, new bank had started in the UK for 100 years until uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and it's just a difficult thing to do. So we argued the case for lowering the entries to, uh, to banking in the United Kingdom, making it easier for competitors to come in, supporting challenger banks where they can be supported, um, making it easier to switch uh, and to um, uh, switch banks and to uh, and greater transparency. On the Competition Markets Authority, I'm afraid we slightly chickened out a bit, actually. Not sure why, but anyway, we said um, uh, we said, well, we better pause and see if they if, if this if, if our proposals make any difference. Um, well, that, that's fine, but I think we're sort of holding that in reserve. Um, we, can, we can discuss that uh, as, we, as we move on. Um, uh, we like the idea of a business bank, uh, uh, probably rather bolder than the one that's now being uh, brooded over by, um, uh, I suppose, um, Dr. Cable. Uh, we think that, um, that uh, the business bank could be a way of uh, challenging, supporting challenger banks by firing funding uh, through them. UK is unusual in, uh, in not having such an institution. Everybody talks about the KFW in Germany, but there's lots of others. Um, and we think that uh, a business bank could be a use, should be a useful way of uh, financing high-growth young firms and could also be, just as important, a platform to create a syndicated uh, a bond market for small companies, which are just uh, can't afford to issue bonds um, by themselves. Um, other things we touched on, well, we thought uh, we knew Martin Wolf would be here, so we said we should implement Vickers in full, in spirit and letter, which we think is an important contribution to stabilizing the financial system. Uh, we had ideas about um, encouraging um, investors to hold shares for longer by tweaking the way voting rights work. Uh, and we particularly um, felt uh, strongly about um, allowance for corporate equity. We feel that uh, we liked very much them. We lifted, we sneaked, and it's not surprising because Tim was on it, the Merlis uh, uh, proposals, uh, which we think would help um, balance the, uh, the, the financing of, of companies in the country, leaning away from over-reliance on, on debt and perhaps helping the banks as well to get their balance sheets into shape more quickly. Merlis had some um, quite big numbers on the impact of that on, on growth going forward. And we also finally said... Um, that uh, an industrial strategy made sense. Uh, you had to concentrate on the 
horizontal policies, competition, skills and all the stuff we've been talking about, but that we should also be sensitive to the comparative advantages that our economy had and where they needed support, we should, we should support them. I guess the sort of bottom line, again, though, as everybody else has mentioned so far, is the need for consistency in this area, the need for consistency in, in small company finance. Uh, we've had a, uh, and support you know, over the last years. We've had ev every government that comes in essentially changes, changes the structures. Sometimes it's just a different nameplate on the floor, front door, but sometimes it's quite dramatic as you move from, you know, from um, business links, RDAs, LEPs, goodness knows what else. Uh, these, these are not the kind of things that underwrite the certainty and consistency that we feel is an important part and missing part from the growth story. So that is that. Richard's admirable brevity matches that of the report as a whole. Francesco Caselli. So I'll be even briefer. Um, so the core of this uh, report are the specific uh, policy and institutional changes proposed in the first three parts that we've seen. That's where the meat of the report is. Uh, in terms of uh, making changes to the way policy and institutions are designed to deliver growth. But we thought it was important as part of this exercise to carve a little bit of space in the report and a little bit of space in this presentation also on a brief reflection on the way we're going to think about the performance of the economy. So growth, uh, how are we going to know if we're doing well? How are we going to judge uh, if the economy is uh, responding to the changes that the report proposes? Uh, growth of what uh, is, is potentially an important question. Um, so um, in discussions of growth, and I'm, I'm sure in everybody's mind as we have been listening through this presentation so far, um, the question of growth of what is an obvious answer uh, is GDP per capita. Um, it's what uh, newspapers talk about, it's what economists have been talking about uh, uh, almost all of the time, and so it's a very standard default option uh, in terms of thinking about uh, performance. So one uh, uh, reflection that came out of our own thinking about uh, measuring performance is that the exclusive focus on GDP uh, is not the most helpful thing in terms of evaluating the performance of the economy. Uh, the report discusses various reasons why uh, GDP has serious limitations, potentially, as a measure of performance of the economy, as a measure of growth. Um, here I will only cite a couple. Uh, there are more in the report, uh, but I want to keep this very short. Um, one uh, reason is that um, GDP per capita uh, can change also significantly in principle without most of people in the population experiencing uh, changes in the same direction. So one possibility, for example, is for GDP per capita to go up also significantly, but that change in GDP per capita being only a reflection of what's happening at the very top of the income distribution, and most other individuals in the economy not experiencing uh, changes in living standards. So it, it, can, it may be a distorted reflection of what happens to the typical person in the economy. Another reason uh, why GDP is a limitation is that it measures production. It does not measure income. And income is a much closer uh, indicator of living standards or things that determine living standards 
uh, than production. So one suggestion that we make in the report is that uh, in thinking about how the economy is doing and in judging the performance of the economy and in judging the potential input, impact to different policies, greater attention is given to another measure, which is median household income. And all three words are important, median, household, and income. So what's media? What, what does it mean? Uh, median household income is the income of the family in the center of the income distribution. So it's the family that has such that 50% of other families uh, have a higher income than this family, and 50% of other families have a lower income of the family. So it's, it's zooming in in the middle of the income distribution. That may be much more informative in terms of what's happening to the typical, to the representative household in the economy. Secondly, it measures income. It doesn't measure production. So it's much closer to consumption and other things that determine living standards in the economy. And finally, the household part of it is the focus on families as opposed to individuals. And it's a way of keeping into account the fact that different incomes sometimes go to feed a family of two or three or four and some other incomes only a person of one. And so in that way, it's also uh, coming closer to the experiences of the typical person, including children or the elderly who, uh, uh, in, in the economy. And so this all boils down to a, a recommendation or a, or, a, or, a, or a hope that statistical agency may uh, direct uh, more effort and resources into producing uh, timely, and I stress timely because it's, it's extremely important to have timely measures of, of performance, so timely and accurate measures of median household income, the report goes into techniques that can be used to, uh, to do this, and there are, we concluded that there are no uh, deep or fundamental technical impediments uh, to producing more timely and more accurate measures of, uh, of MHI, it's certainly not less timely or less accurate than GDP. So there is no clear, uh, we concluded that there is no clear technical reason why GDP is easier or more timely than that. Now, does that matter? Um, so um, it didn't used to. Okay, so this is um, GDP per capita, and this is median income in the UK over a long period of time. If you, if you look uh, up to around, um, okay, the little thing that I so if you look at around, up to around the, the early uh, years of 2001-2002, it is the case that median household income and GDP per capita move fairly close together. And that's actually one reason why GDP used to be such a popular measure. I mean, we used to tell students, look, GDP sucks as, uh, conceptually. Uh, you know, it has all these problems. But... More or less, it moves with all the other things we care about. So, let's, so it's fine to use GDP. We don't, lose, we, don't miss some, we don't miss much. But look what happened since uh, 2001, 2002. Uh, we first have a period from about 2002, 2007, where GDP per capita is growing very strongly. Okay, so you look at that and you say, wow, we are doing really well. But if you look at median household income, it's pretty much stagnating in that period. It's, not going, it's, not, it's moving much, much less than GDP per capita. So it tells a very different story about those years in terms of living standards and how the economy is doing. And then, perhaps even more strikingly, after 2007, actually, they move in different directions. Uh, GDP per capita is falling. Household income, uh, this is good news, actually, is, is going up. So uh, I think we were right in telling our students uh, 10 years ago, you know, Use GDP, it's fine, it's, it's, it's kind of captured what's going on. But that kind of uh, 
somewhat lazy assumption that GDP uh, tells the, the most of the story is becoming less and less true. Okay, so that's the br brief measurement intermission and then uh, Rachel for the conclusion. Thanks, Francesco. Rachel Lomax is next. Well, let me uh, wrap this up by... Um, which is the thing we press? That's right. Bringing it back to the political economy of, of growth. A lot of the problems we've talked about tonight are pretty familiar. And the big challenge is the question that um, uh, Steve Nichol posed in our first session, which is why don't they get fixed? And part of the answer has got to be that politics and institutions matter. If you think about other countries, it's blindingly obvious. I mean, you can't think of fiscal policy in the United States at the moment or um, the speed and success with which the Chinese have built out their infrastructure or the creation of the euro uh, and its, um, its resilience uh, in the face of manifest uh, design flaws without realizing that political values and institutional arrangements make a huge difference and that economists think too narrowly often um, about the problems of economic policy making. So the obvious question is, how does the UK's political and institutional setup constrain the policies needed to improve growth. Well, to put it another way, how could we reform our institutions to improve the chances that we would tackle the problems that hold back growth? Well, the features of our political uh, um, arrangements, I think, are pretty familiar, and they've been mentioned a few times by others. Short-term policy horizons, adversarial politics, very much amplified by round-the-clock media, a thing which perhaps we haven't said enough about is the fact that in, compared with other countries, an awful lot of our infrastructure is privately owned. It's not state-run. Um, and before we get into the sort of misery of it all, it's worth remembering that our political system does have some great strengths. Um, we have governments that are sensitive to public opinion, which not everyone in the world does. They're capable of decisive action, which again some successful countries don't have. Those are important things. We have efficient public utilities. We have regulators that guard consumer interests jealously. But I think from the point of view of long-term growth in particular, our arrangements have some serious downsides um, and which make it difficult uh, to, to implement the long-term investments that really matter for growth, particularly in the infrastructure uh, field. Uh, and also for developing policies that are supported by evidence. Um, I mean, Nick talked uh, rather uh, um, uh, vividly uh, about the two big bugbears of our um, uh, uh, present arrangements. One is um, policy risk, uh, you know, a decisive, an ability to take action pretty quickly and, and be responsive to public opinion pretty quickly. You can see how it feeds uh, um, uh, policy flip-flopping uh, and retreats in the face of, of, of opposition and all the rest of it. 
and creates policy risk for investors, private investors, who are the people who really matter for most of our infrastructure, which inhibits uh, uh, investment. And the other is uh, what we uh, in the trade have always called policy-based evidence, um, which is, uh, you know, um, a politics, which is a policy-making based on assertion rather than experimentation. Um, so, you know, the fundamental weakness that we in the Growth Commission identified, really, was the failure to create a stable policy framework for long-term investment. So our proposals uh, are really aimed at supporting uh, um, both long-term infrastructure investment and the development of, of, of evidence-based policies by, putting, by, by suggesting institutions that would put politics in the right place. I mean, it's, you know, nobody thinks that we could, uh, uh, it would make any kind of sense to try and take politics out of the picture, but there needs to be, it needs to be in the right place. It needs to be, <clears throat> politicians need to be making the strategic choices and setting the high-level objectives, and also, more effectively possible than they do at the moment, holding executive bodies to account. We've also had some suggestions to make about put it, creating more capability at the centre of government. Um, I mean, modern governments need a centre that's capable of strategic direction and, importantly, in performance management. And all uh, British prime ministers recently have been sort of thrashing around and reinventing the wheel in, in this particular space. Um, uh, uh, and they tend to start from scratch each time with their policy units and, and their various units stuck around in the, the cabinet office. Um, but, you know, that each time they start from scratch, they're not uh, uh, building in institutional capital. We badly need a centre of government that doesn't look like the thick of, thing, the thick of it, you know, which is consisting of spin doctors and, and consultants. I think if we can agree that there are some gaps in our present arrangements, we do need to think very carefully about how to fill them. I mean, we've made some suggestions, but I, I think you should take them as uh, fairly high-level suggestions which need an awful lot of fleshing out. Um, you know, effective, effective uh, uh, action requires sustained and cross-party commitment. Um, I think it's really important to beware of institutional tinkering as a substitute for difficult policy action. And that has been a feature of our present arrangements. And the big thing that uh, um, politicians and indeed all of us need to understand is that it takes time. It takes time to develop effective institutions. So any new institutional architecture absolutely must have cross-party support this politically driven cycle of creation and destruction, which we've tended to get into in recent decades, is immensely costly. So finally, and you'd expect this from uh, someone with my uh, pedigree, and from a growth commission which has three ex-members of the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee, I do think we should learn from the success uh, of the Bank of England. It's nearly 320 years old. And it's, and it's grown by a process of pouring new wine into old bottles. What it does now is completely different from what it was doing 20 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. It is better to leave the institutions in place 
and change what they do than to constantly engage in a process of rebranding but leaving the same things done by things with different, uh, different labels on them. So I think at that point we can leave it and uh, get on to the questions. Thank you. Our commissioners are coming up now, and Tim Besley will chair a period of questions and answers. We have about a quarter of an hour for that. And uh, we've got chairs for all of you here, you, whichever you want. you want to take the other end? Mm -hmm. Or do you want me to get out of the way? Okay. All right. So there should be some roving mics, as per usual. Yes, I'm seeing some here. So we're going to come straight to the centre here, uh, question here, and I'm going to try and uh, get round as many as possible. So could I ask you to keep your questions reasonably brief and to the point? You may address them if you, if you choose to one particular commissioner. Okay. Um, you, you may address them if you wish to one particular commissioner. Otherwise, um, uh, uh, I'll direct it to somebody. Uh, uh, Jonathan Haskell, Imperial College. Uh, could, could I ask just on the issue about referring the um, banks to the Competition Commission? Um, I believe the um, Vickers report said that if things didn't improve, the bank should be referred to the, Vic to, the, uh, uh, to the Competition Commission. So can I invite you to go a little bit further about why you uh, took a similar position to them? Maybe you think things have improved, I'm not sure. Uh, a very quick second question, if I may. How much do you think, if these proposals are implemented, uh, growth will uh, improve? Half a percent, one percent, two percent? Could I invite you to put a number on this? Okay, okay let, let's, uh, let's deal with that question. Um, let me just first say, on the issue of the referral to the Competition Commission, you will find in the report, um, and I think it was echoed in something that Richard said, is some commissioners actually were quite bullish about that and wanted to move straight to that step. Others thought that other measures should be given some time to work. So it wasn't an issue, and we say that in the report, on which there was universal agreement. Um, and so I'm, I'm tempted to say Richard has already implicitly, I think, given you uh, his, his stance on that. Um, I don't know if you want to amplify that no, at all, or anyone wants to, uh, to discuss that. On the quantitative question, I'm, I'm actually, when I go to you, Nick, because I know you've been giving, we've had a certain exchange on precisely this question, on how precise we would want to be. So, Nick, why don't you take that one? Uh, this is a question about um, how an economy reacts in a world which is changing very dramatically. Um, and we were focused on the way in which the international division of labour was changing, um, the, the crisis in Europe and so on. So you have to set it in that context. This is not, a lo not about long-run steady-state growth rates. It's about what might happen to the British economy over the next 20 years or so. If you look at the empirical estimates of what the productivity of the kind of teaching reforms that uh, John spoke about could be. Just on that alone, over a 10-20 um, year period, you could get something approaching half a percent or so per annum over that period, kick upwards. If you saw, as a result of all these proposals put together, the rate of investment, which is not that high in the UK, increased by 3 or 4 percent, um, and uh, that would give you perhaps you know, 0 0.3, 0 0.4. If you look at the per annum uh, kick upwards, if you look at the overall 
improvement in the growth rate, which uh, Tim illustrated in the uh, overall policy reforms um, around 1980, and we moved upwards relative to other countries, you get similar kinds of numbers. I could tell you they're additive, uh, but we're modest, calm, sensible, sober people. So we've got three things uh, with some overlap, each of which point around a half. So we would reckon, with all the qualifications that the nature of my answer has embodied, something of the order of half a percent, possibly more, kick upwards in the growth rate. And that's well worth having. Um, Sony Kapoor, I run the think tank Redefine. Now, I don't know if this was intentional, but a strong message that came through was the UK is uniquely bad on skills, on infrastructure, on innovation, and on the financial system. And it also seemed to come through that you were attributing it partly to uh, constant policy changes, adversarial politics, etc., etc. Now, given that that's the case, how do we compare with other countries that have 24-7 media, even more <coughs> adversarial politics, even shorter political cycles? Are they doing better? And it's the, these four parameters you're talking about, they actually go much beyond just implications for growth because innovation, skills, infrastructure, finance are so crucial to all aspects of the economy and society. So we're talking about something really fundamental here. Are we essentially saying, is the Commission saying that the UK political system which has stood us in good stead over the decades and the years, and a little bit of what you were saying, uh, Mr. Stern, uh, is not designed very well, is not adept for the 21st century reality of the 21st century economy, in which case rather than having these institutional innovations which are partly addressing the deficiencies that exist, should we be not talking about something more fundamental? Is there a political system, for example, in continental Europe, you referred to Germany a few times, that is obviously superior? Okay. Yeah, so Rachel would like to yeah. have a go at that Yes, because uh, that carries on from what I was saying. For, first of all, I don't think we're saying the UK is uniquely bad at infrastructure, relative to other countries, at infrastructure, education, and so on. I think what we are saying is these are the problems that the UK has. It has some great strengths, but if you were looking for weaknesses which hold back growth in this country, these are the things you'd fasten on. 30 years ago, you'd have probably fastened on some different things, although I have to say the weakness on education is very long-standing. But if you were doing a list of what's the most important thing 30 years ago, you'd probably have talked about our labour market. You'd almost certainly have talked about our poor inflation record. Um, we had weaknesses in education, we had problems in infrastructure, but they didn't seem so burning. In a sense, it's a sign of the success on those other two things that we've, the agenda has moved on. Um, so I think that's part of it. What was your other point? <laughs> that's fine. That was a good, good answer. Is politics really broken? No, as I said, I mean, basically it has, it has some advantages, our system, but when it comes to creating a, a, a stable long-term policy environment, it's weak. You know, you, get, you, you take your choice. Hi, Faisal Shaheen from the New Economics Foundation. Um, whilst I'm pleased I don't have a really heavy report to take home, there is a danger in brevity, and I, and I, I get a sense um, that there's a bit of an impression of a silver bullet, and I'm referring in particular to the, um, the, economic, the problem of economic inequality and inclusive growth. Human capital alone, and, and doing something about um, investment at the bottom end of the 
um, uh, disadvantaged, for disadvantaged groups will not solve the problem of economic inequality. And I think that there's a real contradiction, actually, in the way that we're talking about UK flexible market, labour markets being a good thing. Because actually, when you look at the evidence of what has driven economic inequality, um, declining unions have been key to that drive in increases in economic inequality. So I guess I would question that and ask you to think a bit more about whether, the, whether UK flexible uh, labour markets are a good thing. Okay, John, do you want to take that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> a couple of points. I mean, I, I agree with you in, in certainly one sense that um, just acting on human capital is not the complete solution to the problem of inequality. We still have to have a good system of redistribution through the tax and benefit system, which is important for propping up incomes at the lower end and giving insurance to people when time, times are hard. And you know, I think that in terms of um, you know, the report kind of embraces, in some sense, technological change and globalisation, but we have to recognise that those things can have costs as well as benefits. In particular, they can reduce the demand relatively for less skilled workers, and that's going to you know, cause, cause issues. Now, having the redistribution helps uh, with the political economy issues because people who are losing out from that gives them some, some, some security. However, having said that, I mean, this report's about the next 50 years. And in order for the, you know, the people who are, who are losing out from those changes to um, improve their position, I think that's got to be a fundamentally a skills issue. We want to give people the capacities to be resilient to those changes, to raise their ability to earn higher wages in the labour market. So I do think that if you're thinking about the long term, as, as we're trying to do in this report, focusing on, on raising people's human capital in, in you know, a variety of ways is, is, is the critical way to do that. And I think we can do it. I think it's not something we should give up on. Um, on unions, I agree. I mean, I think a lot of my work has been on the impact of unions and inequality. They, they certainly did have a a reducing role in inequality. But I, I think the future isn't you know, realistically one to go back to a situation in 1980 where we had two-thirds of all wage contracts determined by union bargains. I think really the, the, the kind of future economy has a role for unions but not in the same level as we've had in the past. And a better model, I think, is a combination of redistribution, minimum wage, and fundamentally increasing human capital to be from the bottom end. Just, okay. the, the, Tim, on, on brevity, uh, the Stern Review was 700 pages, and I, it's my experience not everybody read it all. <laughs> <laughs> no, not true. But on, <laughs> in terms of the work of this, uh, this commission, I think we should recognise the uh, first-rate background work with lots of um, background papers which are available on the web. So the brevity of the report itself, I hope, shouldn't be interpreted as a... Uh, you know, scantness uh, of the evidence behind it. Okay, down the front, uh, just, two, just two quick ones there, and um, I will move towards there. Hi, Bridget Rosewell. I wanted to ask about something that seems to me to have been left out here. Uh, you may have decided it wasn't a problem, but I'd just like some, some reassurance on that, which is one of the long-term drivers of growth is trade and innovation in new markets, new products. Now, Richard, you talked about the, the financial uh, and the access to finance for small and medium-sized businesses, but surely there's more things about driving technology and, and growth and trade than just that. Um, is it that we're okay on new inventions and support for R&D in universities more broadly? Have we got all of that right so we don't need to address it? Do you want to have a step? Uh, well, I think that um, if you compare the UK with other countries, uh, uh, 
we have a very strong science base and we do well relatively in transferring that into commercial uh, in the commercial space I think the World Economic Forum for what it's worth says we're number two in the world for doing that uh, but I do think you're right uh, when you think about uh, what is happening to our net trade performance now. Why is it that after a devaluation of the scale we've seen since 2007, our, our trade figures, our, trade, our current account is the deficit is the biggest since it's been since 1990, compare us with Sweden uh, over, over the same time. I think that is a worry. Whether that's to do with the way supply chains have broken down in this country, whether it's to do with um, the fact that we have stopped making quite a lot of stuff that we used to sell, I'm not sure. I, <coughs> sorry, there are an incredibly large number of questions about, I have about every proposal, but I just focus on the big <laughs> point. The big point. This is incredibly technocratic. I'm, I'm sorry, the way it comes over is we've got these terrible politicians who keep on screwing us up. Unfortunately, they get elected by the people. Let's stop this nonsense and sort them out. And, and create them, replace them by a, a large number of wonderful technocratic body staffed by people like us, uh, and the MPC is the model. But all these other things you're talking about, infrastructure investment, of core part, there are lots of others, but it's the most important one, they aren't like monetary policy. They really are deeply and profoundly political in every possible respect. You can't remove politics from it. So what are you telling the Prime Minister to do, basically to, to close up shop and leave it to somebody else to do his job? I'm sorry, that's how it sounds. It doesn't sound the way Rachel has just described it. That's how it sounds to me. Okay. Um, who wants to come back on that? Because I think... Uh, <laughs> I don't think... I, I, I think it's something we want to defend quite strongly. Yeah. I know you. <laughs> 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 that, that was one of the best students I ever had uh, in speaking in, in the audience, I should say. But the... Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> this is no time for levity. The, <laughs> the, Martin asks a very important question, but I completely disagree with uh, the accusation, although you did say this is the way it comes over, which is a, a different thing from actually accusing us of that. Essentially, if you ask people how you would like decisions made, do you want a Minister of Health fiddling around with the drugs that you get every five minutes on the basis of the latest pressure group, or do you want NICE? Now, for all its imperfections, we've established NICE in a democratic way as an institution that looks at these things. Um, off what doesn't function too badly, none of these things are perfect. We have established here institutions which can do the kinds of jobs that uh, we're talking about. And these are analogous. They're not exactly the same. Infrastructure Australia was established about five years ago. And I was discussing the establishment with Kevin Rudd in Davos last week, the Prime Minister of Australia at the time. There was a tremendous struggle and argument about establishing them. Now, it's not all that long ago, but on the whole, it seems to have stuck together. The example that we gave of France and compensation and so on is a living example. The example we gave of the EBRD is a living example. All of these things established, very different in their own way, but established by careful government decision as a way of getting the big decisions in the economy 
made, not by the public sector, but providing them an environment in which those private sector investment decisions can be taken. So private sector investments driving this and the institutions that are guiding it have been tested in most cases elsewhere and selected by a democratic process. Jump in. I mean, we'll have plenty of time to talk about this, but um, yeah. I always remember both Mrs. Thatcher and John Major seriously opposing the idea of making the Bank of England independent because interest rates were far too political, and you know there was no way in which you could take it away from from you know, the Chancellor, um, who had to be answerable for these decisions. You know, people's views changed. One reason why they were glad to get rid of interest rates was because it turned out that it was politically, if, if they thought that the political damage involved with moving interest rates was too great. And I would guess in the infrastructure space, they often find themselves in that position now. I mean, it's exactly the same time and consistency problem as it is with monetary policy. You've got long-term decisions that need taken by people who've got very short-term horizons and short-term uh, uh, incentives. Um, but, you know, look at the Davis Commission. This is the, um, uh, probably the right place to think about it. You know, that's a, that is a set of decisions about the third runway at Heathrow, about well, airport capacity in the southeast, which the politicians want to distance themselves from. It's not just an exercise in long grassing a political decision, that. That is an exercise in trying to, the politicians trying to retreat to a safe distance. So I think putting the politics in the right place actually applies in infrastructure as well as in monetary policy, and you don't know if you've tried it, whether it will work. Okay. Is there any question from the upstairs? So let's go to somebody. I just see one hand up here. And then uh, we are, as ever, unfortunately going to disappoint some people who do have questions because we have a limited amount of time. Um, I'm going to look at our leader here on the end. He's going to tell me when, when, we, have to, when we have to stop. But... Uh, Hi, um, I'm Zach Wilcox from the Center for Cities. Um, I noticed that there wasn't much of a spatial element to the report, um, nothing about north-south divide or um, anything to do with leading and lagging places or cities versus um, non-urban areas. And you know, that could really link into regional systems of innovation and cities. Um, I was wondering if there's any um, merit to adding a spatial element to this report. John, do you want to come in on that? Um, yeah, I mean the. I mean, what what yes, what one of the facts is that um, you know the north south divide. Uh, the, the reason, there are spatial differences um, in economic performance, um, but with any within any region, that the variation is much bigger than it is uh, between regions. So we we kind of focus more on the kind of national problems because of the fact that. You know, we, we see that, um, that you know, the variation of any kind of block you look at is very, is very great. We, we do have some proposals on space. So, for example, um, one of the things that the set of infrastructure institutions that we put forward could do would be to allow coalition, local coalitions to come together to make uh, proposals to change things. To say, you know, Cambridgeshire local authority, as they do, want to build a, a new town, have infrastructure around that, they would get together with you know, local enterprise partnerships, other kinds of groups, make proposals to the, uh, the new architecture infrastructure we have to make changes. And that's one way I think we could try and get some local initiative going. So uh, although the focus is more national, there are, there are some proposals particularly around space. Okay, I think we, we go wrap up. I'll just say one, one thing in closing, which I think is a reflection of some of the questions that we've had, that we, we are very keen that this report be the beginning of a conversation around 
the very central long-run set of issues that uh, and therefore all, all the questions that have been raised I think are very germane to how we take the agenda forward. We hope that this report isn't just buried and forgotten that, that there will be a living and, uh, and, and something that will influence the debate into the future. So Craig may want to close proceedings. Thank you all for coming and please join me in thanking the Growth Commission.